Welcome to Current State from WKAR, your NPR station for the Capital Region. I'm Karel Vega. This week is all about Serving Up Science. Serving Up Science is a series from WKAR produced in association with Food at MSU. It's a bite-sized podcast in which science writer Cheryl Kirschenbaum and I explore food topics as they relate to science and history. And today you'll listen to a variety of segments we've produced this year. We'll start things off with one of my favorite episodes called The Kamikaze Cola. Food is the language everyone speaks, but do we truly understand it? Between the conversations over organic food and GMOs, different diets taking the world by storm, and how what we eat actually impacts our environment, there's no shortage of things to learn about. Hi, I'm Karel Vega. And I'm Cheryl Kirschenbaum, and this is Serving Up Science. The year was 1992. Bill Clinton became the 42nd president, and Donald Trump appeared in Home Alone 2. Wayne's World debuted at the movies, and I was 12 years old. How old were you, Carell? I was born. Okay, so my memory of the early 90s is probably a little better than yours. I had braces, big hair. Cheryl, you still have big hair. But it was cool then. Hey, it's cool again. 1992 was a good year for music as well, because this little band out of Seattle called Nirvana was changing music as we knew it. But it was a bad year for soda. And that it was. I didn't realize it at the time, but we have a story this week about a kamikaze mission of Coca-Cola to destroy a new product by Pepsi. So let's dive in. Cheryl, do you remember Crystal Pepsi? Sort of. I don't think it was around very long. That's right. Crystal Pepsi was introduced to shake up the soda market and Pepsi poured $40 million into marketing it. And that's before inflation. Indeed. It was launched during the Super Bowl and introduced as a New Age cola. And it did reasonably well. Initially, it was on the market in the spring of 1992 and off the market by the end of 1994. A short lifespan for a product so heavily invested in. Because about a half year after Crystal Pepsi launched, Coke introduced Tab Clear. But it wasn't quite for competition. It was more sinister than that. Coke didn't want to tarnish their name, so they went with Tab Clear, a product with one purpose, to make clear colas confusing and end their run. And it worked. But how? Well, the full story comes from an interview in marketing writer Stephen Denny's 2011 book, Killing Giants, 10 Strategies to Topple the Goliath in Your Industry. And in the book, he speaks with Sergio Zyman, who just happened to be the Coca-Cola chief marketing officer during the launch of Tab Clear. Using the Tab name rather than Coke mattered. Tab was already their least popular soda brand. And while Crystal Pepsi came in regular and diet flavors, Tab Clear was only an artificially sweetened diet drink. And diet sodas weren't nearly as popular in the early 90s as they are today. So some people assumed Crystal Pepsi was a diet drink because of Tab Clear. On top of that, according to what's left of the record of this marketing uh, campaign, if you can call it that, Tab Clear was specifically marketed to women. I've seen it described as the Virginia Slims of sodas. So Coke was trying to actively turn men away from their product by making it appear to be a soda for ladies. And Crystal Pepsi as well by association. And frankly, I think that's just weird. Hey, the 90s were a weird time. The 90s were awesome. Fine, I'll give you that one. But the most important ingredient in this plan was the ingredients. Coke called Tab Clear full flavored, but reviews described it as peppery, cinnamony, medicinal, and just not like Tab. So you're saying it wasn't very good? 
I'm saying I don't think drinking a peppery cola sounds particularly appealing. Mm, I don't either, and I don't honestly think I ever tried it. And lots of people associated Tab Clear with Crystal Pepsi, and the rest is history. So mission accomplished. Tab Clear itself only lasted into the spring of 1993, a product failure that didn't harm the Coca-Cola brand, but did take down a promising competitor's product along the way. Clever marketing, albeit a little sneaky. I think Don Draper would approve. We can't really know how much Tab Clear contributed to the fall of Crystal Pepsi, but both left the market within months of each other. In fact, even during what might have been considered Crystal Pepsi's heyday, it was being poked fun at constantly, including during a Saturday Night Live skit where they introduced the world to Crystal Gravy. Crystal Gravy. You've never seen a gravy like this. But it came back in the past few years briefly as a throwback from Pepsi. I didn't try it then, but if I see it on shelves now, I'm definitely going to pick one up, and not the diet version either. Like I said, the '90s are cool again. Classic Nintendo's back. I know this '90s teen has one. Well, let's leave that there. You're listening to a special serving up science edition of Current State on WKAR, your NPR station for the Capital Region. You're listening to a special Serving Up Science edition of Current State. I'm Karel Vega, and I'm Cheryl Kirschenbaum. Low carb diets are popular. You're right, Cheryl. I once worked at a supermarket that catered to health conscious consumers, and I got to tell you, there was a lot of demand for protein and sometimes fat packed foods low in carbs. But are these diets healthy, or is it all just hype? We have our first Serving Up Science guest in studio with us here today. I am sitting across from Dr. Robin Tucker, who is assistant professor of food science and human nutrition at Michigan State University. Thanks so much for joining us. It's great to be here. So maybe we could start by just asking, how did you get interested in food? Um, you know, I've always been interested in in food and exercise and how that you know makes you a healthy person. And I've always been told I should eat my vegetables, but. I was always that kid that wanted to know why I should be eating my vegetables. And so with a degree in nutrition, I was able to explore the why of uh, healthy eating. And I think it's worth taking a moment to step back and talk about what carbs are, because we tend to demonize carbs lately. Just like a few episodes ago, Carell and I were talking about the sugar industry or whether fats are to blame for heart disease and cancer. So what are carbs? And they aren't really all bad, are they? Because we need carbs to do all of these activities, like think. Exactly. So carbohydrate is a very broad term for a lot of different categories of nutrients or building blocks for our body. We have quote unquote good carbs like fiber, which are so important for um, intestinal health. So making sure that you're going to the bathroom regularly and, and getting all of that um, you know, processed food out of your body in a routine fashion. This may help to prevent colon cancer, which is a increasingly um, seen in the population. Fiber may also help with uh, cholesterol control. So getting lots of fiber can decrease bad cholesterol. And often we see that diets that are high in fiber, those people that follow those high fiber diets tend to weigh less. So fiber is a good carb. How does it compare to something like sugar? Really, sugar in a simple form like table sugar doesn't really provide us with much nutrition other than calories. This month, a giant 25-year-long study of more than 15,000 adults was published in the journal The Lancet Public Health, finding that low-carb diets are correlated with a shorter lifespan. Do you know what's going on there? 
So this was an interesting study, and you're right, it did just come out. So I think that the scientific community is still digesting, if you will, the, the ramifications of the findings. They found that people who were eating fewer carbs uh, died sooner, but also people who were eating more than the recommended carb intake. So more than 70% of their calories from carbs also died earlier. But I think if we go back to this idea of moderation, of getting somewhere between 45 to 65 percent of your calories from carbohydrate, you're probably, you know, if you're making good choices, high in fiber, low in sugar, then I think you're going to have, you know, uh, both a longer life and a higher quality of life while you're enjoying that increased lifespan. And I think that's really important. Quality and quantity are what we're looking for. You're listening to Serving Up Science. We're talking with Dr. Robin Tucker, assistant professor in the Department of Food Science and Human Nutrition at Michigan State University, about low-carb diets. They seem to change names every few years. You have Atkins, Keto, Carnivore. But why are these low-carb diets so popular right now? I think because they are very effective in the short term. At least they seem to be effective for people. But really, when you have these low-carb diets, what's happening is you get this really great feeling because you've the scale says that you've had this initial weight loss that looks really good in terms of numbers, but you're not actually losing fat. You're losing water. And so that's a bit deceptive. Um, so you get this boost of feeling good, like I'm making progress, but in reality, you've just lost some water weight, which will come back the moment you start eating carbohydrate again. What about overall health? Can a true low-carb diet actually be healthy if you combine the right nutrients and the foods you do eat? It depends on what aspect of health we're interested in. If we're looking at weight loss, if we're looking at cardiovascular health, uh, a variety of things, diabetes and blood sugar control. It really depends on you know, why you're choosing that diet as to whether or not you're going to see the health effects that you want. We'll also say that there's not a lot of long-term evidence that looks at those low-carb diets in terms of general health. I mentioned on my social media accounts that we would be touching on these low-carb diets. And a question that I assured someone that I would ask you is, shorter term, can someone who decides to eat a low-carb diet or a keto diet, I guess, intermittently, can there be benefits to that? That's a tricky question. Um, and, and what we see often is that people will go on a keto diet and, and maybe even are able to stay on it for longer than they've ever been on any other diet before and see that weight loss. But then they revert back because staying on the keto diet is very difficult. And then they, they gain the weight back and perhaps even more. And then they go back on the keto and lose it, and then they go off the keto and gain it. So you set yourself up for this yo-yo effect of losing maybe the same 10 pounds and gaining the same 10 pounds over and over and over. What would be your best advice? You said moderation, but what are some of the best foods we should be focused on for healthy eating? So if we want to follow, you know, a named diet, so, you know, we've got the Whole30, the Keto, the Atkins, uh, whatever you're interested in. If you want to follow a main diet, or named diet, I'm sorry, that has research behind it, that you can go to a website and look up what the foods are, I would recommend the Mediterranean diet. The Mediterranean diet is a pattern of eating. It emphasizes fruits and vegetables, it emphasizes whole grains, it emphasizes lean meats, like especially fish, it emphasizes olive oil and nuts, and some dairy. So that to me is a moderate, easy to follow, easy to adhere to diet 
that people, I think, can, can appreciate and enjoy uh, and, and follow long term. We've been speaking with Dr. Robin Tucker, assistant professor in the Department of Food Science and Human Nutrition at Michigan State University, about low-carb diets. Dr. Tucker, thanks for speaking with us. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to a special Serving Up Science edition of Current State. I'm Karel Vega. And I'm Cheryl Kirschenbaum. It's that time of year again. Are you excited about the holidays coming up, Cheryl? Not quite yet, Carell. I'm excited about the release of Michigan State University's Fall 2018 Food Literacy and Engagement Poll. That's the biannual survey you run at Food at MSU, right? It is. We poll over 2,000 Americans every spring and fall on a whole bunch of different food topics, and the data is weighted so it reflects U.S. Census demographics. And why do you survey consumers? That allows us to recognize what people are concerned about, what they understand, where gaps in knowledge exists, and ultimately, the results provide a roadmap for researchers to learn where we can provide tools to navigate information and misinformation about food. So ideally, all of that helps us to bridge the gap between experts in agriculture and food and the public. I see. And how many times has Food at MSU surveyed the American public? We launched the poll in 2017, and this was our third wave. And we've already collected a lot of data on people's attitudes related to issues ranging from food waste to what they're looking for on labels. Okay, let's start with food labels then, a topic we covered early in 2018. What are some of the latest findings this time? 60% of Americans say food labels impact their buying decisions. That makes sense. I definitely look at labels when I'm at the grocery store. What do you search for? Oh, sometimes low sodium. That's an important one when we're looking to reduce salt consumption. The survey found 59% of consumers also say low-sodium logos influence what they buy. But the thing is, many of the most popular terms on food labels are fairly meaningless. What do you mean by that? Well, 65% of Americans are looking for products labeled natural when they go shopping. Oh, that sounds pretty reasonable. On the surface. You mean on the label. <laughs> yes. But what does natural mean? Why does it appeal to you, Carell? I guess I assume it's somehow wholesome. Natural is definitely a word with appeal when I think about what I'm buying for my family. It sounds to me like a small step under organic. And that's mostly because of marketing. I had a feeling you were going to say that. Natural doesn't necessarily imply something is healthy. It makes me think of something picked right off a tree. Arsenic occurs naturally, but we shouldn't be eating it. Mm, certainly true. I hadn't really thought about it in that context before. It's notable that the most popular terms consumers seem to be looking for on food labels are also typically the most ambiguous. What other things are we focused on? 58% of respondents look for the term clean. You're right. I see clean everywhere these days. Clean eating, clean living. There are now even makeup products advertising their products are clean. And what does clean mean? Nothing. But it's trendy and it sells products. Okay, so clean means nothing. Natural means nothing. Are there more meaningful terms? Yes, 53% of consumers are looking for the word organic, and 50% say they're interested in the location of production on their food labels. And that kind of information does tell us more about a product. And 49% look for the words non-GMO or GMO-free on the label. And that's informative as well, right? That's where we get into a gray area. Sometimes it can be, but advertisers have noticed people are willing to pay more money for that non-GMO label. So then we see products like bottles of water or boxes of salt announcing they're GMO-free. Water and salt, which have no genes to genetically modify even. 
Exactly. That touches on the confusion and misinformation out there about genetically modified foods, a topic we've also discussed on the series. And along those lines, every wave of the poll includes one question to measure general consumer knowledge about food. In this wave, we found that 49% of consumers say they would like all food with deoxyribonucleic acid to be labeled. You mean DNA? DNA. And all food contains DNA in genes. Right. That one's not intended to be a, quote, gotcha question, but it does provide a sense of how chemical names can be confusing to consumers. And that is important to consider given the policy conversations already taking place about the labeling of GMO foods. As well as new technologies on the horizon and those already reshaping the food landscape. Well, with just a minute to go, any other interesting insights from the latest MSU survey? So many. But one that's really worth highlighting here is that 51% of consumers say they rarely, here meaning less than once a month, or never seek information about where food was grown or how it was produced. Wow, that's kind of mind-blowing. We are more removed from agriculture in the U.S. than ever before as people move away from rural areas into cities and suburbs. That's true. Today, less than 2% of Americans live on farms. So it's no wonder Americans are confused about complex topics related to diet, health, and sustainability. Which is a big reason we started this show about how food impacts our lives and our planet. To learn more about MSU's food literacy and engagement poll, go to the Food at MSU website, food.msu.edu. Serving Up Science is produced in association with Food at MSU. I'm Carell Vega. And I'm Cheryl Kirschenbaum, and this is WKAR. Good riddance to the blandest of all apples, Red Delicious. Excuse me? I'm pretty excited for apple season. I can tell. Let's just stop that right there. I I like them, but not as much as Raffi does. It sounds like you're not a big fan of the long-reigning apple champion Red Delicious. And that's been our country's most grown variety for over half a century. No, definitely not. Red Delicious, well, there's so many great apples. You got Honeycrisp, Gala, Fuji. By comparison, the Red Delicious is just so boring. I would even go as far as calling it flavorless. Well, it's definitely not as crispy, but it wasn't always the case, Carell. We made it that way. The bright red variety we've come to expect as Red Delicious, distinctive with an elongated shape and that five-point base, it's changed over the years. But let's start this story off with its birth. In the 1700s, apples themselves were a staple in colonial America. Not just to eat either, colonists used apples for a variety of things, including cider as an alternative to water which might not taste or even be so good back then. And our now famous... You mean infamous... Red Delicious variety came onto the scene in the late 1800s. The story goes that a farmer named Jesse Hyatt let a certain apple tree grow on his property after many unsuccessful attempts to kill it. Well, maybe he should have tried a little harder. (laughs) Well, Jesse entered the fruit he had named Hawkeye into an apple competition during the 1890s, and he won. He then sold the rights to the Stark brothers who had hosted the competition. And they renamed this new apple Delicious, but eventually Red Delicious, since they also sold Golden Delicious apples as well. But it probably didn't taste like the Red Delicious apples we've become accustomed to in the 21st century. You mean the ones that you despise? The very same. As the number of local farms declined and more shoppers turned to markets for produce during the 20th century, customers preferred the look of a particular type of apple. Americans wanted deep, dark red apples because they associated the color with ripeness. Both apple growers and supermarkets were happy to appease them, and Red Delicious apples were bred to meet expectations, which came at the expense of taste and texture. 
Elsewhere, farmers and scientists continued producing sweeter and crisper varieties, like the Honeycrisp developed at the University of Minnesota in the early 1990s. That is my favorite, and there are more coming. All over the U.S. and the world, apple breeders are combining the best traits out there to create new and exciting variations. In fact, a group of breeders out of Ohio called the Midwest Apple Improvement Association have developed an apple they're calling Evercrisp, which they say combines the best traits of Honeycrisp and Fuji apples. And not to be outdone, the same folks out of the University of Minnesota have bred the Rave Apple, which shares traits similar to the Honeycrisp but reaches its peak ripeness about a month earlier. So it's not surprising that the demand for new red delicious trees has gone down with so many tasty options out there. But for listeners who still love a good red delicious, don't be too concerned. The traditional favorite is still projected to be the second most popular apple by production in the U.S. this season after the Gala. And the Granny Smith will be third, followed by Fuji, and then our favorite, the Honeycrisp, which is predicted to continue its rise. With some experts speculating, it might be our third most popular apple as early as 2020. And I know you'll be looking forward to that. I'm just going to enjoy apple season and the fall, and I hope our listeners do as well. Food is the language everyone speaks, but do we truly understand it? Between the conversations over organic food and GMOs, different diets taking the world by storm, and how what we eat actually impacts our environment, there's no shortage of things to learn about. Hi, I'm Karel Vega. And I'm Cheryl Kirschenbaum, and this is Serving Up Science. It's the holiday season and supermarkets are becoming more packed as people get ready for family get-togethers. And a lot of leftovers, which brings us back to food waste, something we've covered on the series before. But do you know how your household's food waste impacts the environment? To learn more about food waste, we're joined today via phone by Amanda Cuellar. She's a researcher working with the National Socio-Environmental Synthesis Center, or SUSINC, out of the University of Maryland in Annapolis. Thanks for joining us, Amanda. Thank you. We've talked a little bit about food waste in previous episodes, but I think there's a lot more to share. So I'm hoping, Amanda, you can start by telling us how much food is wasted in the U.S. every year and where does it end up? So um, in the U.S., we waste about 30 to 50 percent of available food each year, which comes out to about 1200 to $1,500 worth of food uh, for the average American family of four. Uh, when we look at where this waste goes, most of it actually goes to the landfill, about 20 million tons which is equivalent to the weight of all Americans. So that's what we're throwing in the landfill every year. Um, the remaining portion of it is composted, about 2 million tons, and then about 7 million tons is com- combusted for energy generation. What does wasting food mean exactly for the environment? That's a good question. So when we throw away food, we're also wasting the resources that we use to produce the food, such as water, land, fertilizers, pesticides, energy, and other things and also the consequences of food production. Uh, For instance, pollution to air, water, and land, soil degradation, and biodiversity loss. Um, When we look at these emissions to the air, we find that the greenhouse gas emissions that come from wasted food is equivalent to about 33 million passenger vehicles driving for a year. That is insane. And even though we know a fair amount about the greenhouse gas emissions from food loss and waste, the extent of these impacts on other areas of the environment are less known. We're speaking with Amanda Cuellar. She's a researcher working with the National Socio-Environmental Synthesis Center, or SUSINC, out of the University of Maryland in Annapolis about food waste. All right, but we can for sure say what we do know is that this is a huge problem. So tell us a little bit about what we can do. So um, I am working with uh, SUSINC and 
other researchers on a new study that takes a comprehensive look at the environmental impacts of interventions to prevent food waste and repurpose excess food. Uh, so far, we're finding that the interventions with the biggest potential to decrease the environmental impacts of food loss and waste is food waste prevention. So that means when you're thinking about making your Thanksgiving dinner, try only to get as much food as you need. And if you do have leftovers, keep in mind that eating those leftovers is better for the environment than throwing it away or composting it. Amanda, is anyone else doing anything about food waste? Actually, there are. In 2015, the UN included the goal of having food waste by 2030 in the Sustainable Development Goals. Uh, soon after, in 2015, the USDA and EPA announced that they would also have the goal of reducing food, waste, food loss and waste by a half by 2030. You've been listening to Amanda Cuellar talking about food waste. She's a researcher working with Sasink out of the University of Maryland. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. For more information on food waste, you can visit food.msu.edu to watch a recent community roundtable discussion on the topic. Serving Up Science is produced in association with Food at MSU. I'm Karel Vega. And I'm Cheryl Kirschenbaum, and this is WKAR. You're listening to a special Serving Up Science edition of Current State. I'm Karel Vega. And I'm Cheryl Kirschenbaum. Would you eat artificial meat? Artificial uh, meat? Artificial meat. Or clean meat? Maybe cell-cultured meat? Or in vitro meat? And some even call it, I'm not making this up, alt-meat. Alt-meat? What are you talking about? I'm talking about meat that doesn't come directly from animals, but instead from cell cultures. I guess. I don't really have a strong opinion. I honestly haven't given it much thought, although I'll say artificial meat doesn't immediately sound... Appetizing. You mean the idea of your food coming from a laboratory rather than a farm? Yeah, I do remember there was a live tasting of a lab-grown burger in London about five years ago that made the news and had a $330,000 price tag. The, the mouthfeel has a, a feel like meat. The absence is, I, I feel like the fat. You know, like it's, 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 it's a leanness to it. But, but the bite, you know, feels like, uh, you know, a conventional hamburger. You know, again, this is kind of an unnatural experience in that I can't tell you over the past 20 years how many times I've had a burger without ketchup or any kind of <laughs> Yet we haven't heard all that much about the technology since. Should we expect to? Artificial meat is drawing close to entering the marketplace at a much more affordable cost, so we can expect to be hearing a lot more about it. Okay, so first let's step back and address why anyone is interested in turning to cultured meat at all. What's wrong with cows and chickens? And seafood too. And seafood. Nothing is wrong with farm-raised meat at all. But artificial meat appeals to different people for all sorts of reasons. First, as you pointed out, it doesn't involve killing animals. I see. So we avoid the environmental impacts of farming like excess carbon dioxide, water, and energy waste at a time when we know resources are limited. And of course, the ethical issues associated with slaughtering live animals. And lab-grown meat doesn't require added growth hormones. So environmental groups, animal welfare advocates, and some health-conscious consumers have been eagerly anticipating alternative meats for a long time. And those are definitely real benefits, but how does the meat grow? What scientists do is they take an animal's adult muscle stem cells and basically set them in a nutrient-rich liquid that helps them grow and multiply. And a few weeks later, they have millions of stem cells, which form small strips of muscle. What I'm curious about is, how is this going to work? Is each company going to have one animal? 
that they rely on and they're going to be like celebrity animals that they're like, this is Frankie and he's the best cow and he makes the best artificial meat cells. I honestly have no idea, but I hope so. You know what I mean? I want Frankie to be the cow. <laughs> I think it's it's probably unlikely because I would expect they'd want diversity of where the cells come from. Probably want to try a whole bunch of different things, but I like your idea. Strips of muscle. You know, I'm still not sold on this. Groups of these cells develop around a kind of scaffold that helps them take desired shapes like turning them into patties or nuggets. You see, I get that it's really meat, and yet to me, I I have to admit that meat from a lab just seems unnatural. You're thinking Frankenstein, aren't you? I can't help it. It's alive. It's moving. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. In the name of God. Not quite a fair comparison, but you're not at all alone in having reservations. And you're highlighting the most important part of this discussion on artificial meat's chance of success. What do you mean? Right now, there are all sorts of debates on what to call this stuff. As I mentioned, potential names vary widely. Give me a couple of them. So the U.S. Cattlemen's Association is worried about competition with farm-raised meat. So they've been arguing against using the term meat at all in favor of just calling it cultured tissue. That's understandable, although I also can't really imagine picking up some cultured tissue in the deli section. Mm, Me neither. And other groups prefer the name clean meat because of the controlled growth conditions and the lack of added hormones. That would certainly offer a more positive image given to the current clean eating craze that we're going through. And there are people who want the label to distinguish itself from traditionally grown meat because the health risks would be different from what's produced on a farm. It sounds like this meat debate won't end anytime soon. Probably not, but there's an even more important factor than what artificial meat is eventually going to be called on the packaging. And that would be? Consumers, the rest of us. You mentioned that there's this ick factor for some people, regardless of the name. I definitely have some reservations, although I also really like the idea of burgers without added hormones that don't involve the slaughterhouse and save resources. Feeling conflicted? A little bit. Most Americans are. Michigan State University's food literacy and engagement poll from earlier this year found that just one-third of Americans say they would be likely to purchase lab-grown meat at all. Meaning regardless of how soon artificial meat becomes available at an affordable price or how it's labeled, people's attitudes will ultimately decide its fate in the marketplace. And in the meantime, we'll be watching the story unfold. You're listening to a special Serving Up Science edition of Current State on WKAR. I'm Karel Vega, joined by science writer Cheryl Kirschenbaum. And this next segment is all about sugar. Sugar. That was a clip from Sugar Sugar by the Archies. It came out in 1969. And when we talk about the sugar industry and research, we have to start with the 1960s. Why is that? Back then, the idea of a link between diet and heart disease was new, and doctors weren't sure whether to focus on fats, sugar, or both. A lot of modern diet plans today still advocate for one over the other. That's true. And most of them still get a lot wrong. But back in the 60s, the sugar industry jumped in to have some influence and shift all the blame on fats. 
In 1965, a group called the Sugar Research Foundation secretly paid for a scientific review downplaying evidence linking blood fat levels to sugar consumption. And that review was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. So it achieved real influence and legitimacy. Exactly. And last year, a new article in the journal PLOS Biology revealed another layer to our confusion over sugar. The industry funded their own research, but never shared the results. A 2017 paper out of the University of California at San Francisco evaluated a bunch of internal documents from the sugar industry. Their findings are pretty disturbing. In 1968, the Sugar Research Foundation paid for a study on sugar. And initial findings didn't look so good. Research found that a high sugar diet increased triglyceride levels in laboratory animals. And for listeners, triglycerides are? A type of fat in the blood which can increase the risk of heart attacks and strokes in people. Yikes. So a lot of sugar is probably not so great for us. Animals fed sugar also seem to have a higher risk of bladder cancer. And the results of this research were buried? Well, let's just say it wasn't shaping up to be a shining endorsement for a high sugar diet. So what we know is that the study was abruptly stopped before completion. So in 1968, researchers were learning that a high sugar diet might be linked to heart disease and possibly cancer, and yet no one heard about it. The researcher funded by the industry to conduct the study even asked to continue, but was refused. And this is all on record. A statement by the Sugar Association, a group with organizational ties to the Sugar Research Foundation, claims, quote, The study ended for reasons unrelated to the potential research findings. They say it was over budget and delayed. Seems a little convenient. It is puzzling, to say the least. And the authors of that new journal article reviewing the research say controversy surrounding sugar, quote, may be rooted in more than 60 years of food and beverage industry manipulation of science. The lead author goes on to suggest that had this information been made public, there would have been a lot more research scrutiny of sugar. Which might explain the barrage of low-fat and fat-free food products that became really big in the 90s. The label says 99% fat-free, but inside is the classic taste of original Chef Boyardee. What? You can eat cake! What about the fat? No fat! What about cholesterol? No cholesterol! New from Kraft, Kraft-free ranch non-fat dressing. Fat-free, cholesterol-free, but feel free to love the taste. But a 2016 study in the journal Nutrition and Diabetes found that in general, the low-fat version of food products contain more sugar. And new research in recent years has demonstrated there are real links between sugary diets and heart disease. And we probably could have heard about it all a lot sooner. But the industry, it seems, wields a lot of influence. While today's guidelines recommend that added sugars make up no more than 10% of our daily calories, the president of the Sugar Association called that, quote, scientifically out of bounds in 2016. It's disturbing, to put it mildly. And this kind of dishonesty makes my job as a science advocate and storyteller a lot harder. It's just one example where bad science and irresponsible research sows doubt which can influence public opinion on all sorts of important issues and fuel anti-science sentiment. You're saying that it makes it more likely people will point to an egregious example like this and lose trust broadly in the scientists and research that impact our health and safety, like vaccine research and GMOs. Unfortunately, yes. But the take-home message from today is that when it comes to sugar, there can be too much of a good thing. With sugar, and fats for that matter, moderation is key. And the next time you're at the store, check for yourself. Grab the regular and low-fat or fat-free version of an item you usually buy and notice the differences in sugar content.
Food is the language everyone speaks, but do we truly understand it? Between the conversations over organic food and GMOs, different diets taking the world by storm, and how what we eat actually impacts our environment, there's no shortage of things to learn about. Hi, I'm Karel Vega. And I'm Cheryl Kirschenbaum, and this is Serving Up Science. Recently, we've explored some interesting culture and history related to food, but it's time to science. All right, that sounds like a plan. Let's do it. Okay, well, the cover story of the new issue of Wired magazine is called The Mutant Future of Food, which is a perfect opportunity for us to discuss gene editing, the way scientists can essentially speed up nature and change how we produce food all around the world. You're talking about the new gene editor, CRISPR. I am. Well, let's first tell our listeners what exactly CRISPR means. CRISPR stands for Clustered, Regularly Interspaced, Short, Palindromic Repeats. Whew, that's a mouthful. In short, it's a tool in plant breeding and biology that allows scientists to target specific regions of genetic code and edit DNA. It lets them permanently modify genes in living cells through a process analogous to copying and pasting a phrase in a Word document. Should we be doing that, though? Well, we have been doing it through traditional plant breeding for thousands of years. But CRISPR is different, right? It's a little more complicated than traditional breeding of plants or animals. It is, but it's a lot faster and more specific. And tinkering with the genetics of plants is good because... I get it. Genetically modified plants make a lot of people nervous. And as I've said before on the show, there have been good and bad actors and outcomes in the GM food discussion. But today, we're talking about the why. Okay, so why? CRISPR is reinventing the discussion of genetic mutation. Before most genetically modified foods had been made by mutating genes and inserting genes at random locations in genomes. Wait, so mutating like the X-Men or something like that? If only. No, I'll put it this way. We wouldn't be here without mutations. They are the ultimate source of evolution. Mutation generates the variation that leads to new species. It's essentially how we got from the primordial soup to ballet. And you're saying GM foods generally aren't simply stitching different animal and plant genes together. No. And early attempts that made news aren't on the market. But the idea of bringing together genes from different species is what led to the term frankenfoods. That's right. It's a scary word, and it's roused a lot of public concern about scientists playing God. When, in reality, most GMO foods on the market, like corn and soybeans, are the result of knocking out the bad genes. But you said CRISPR is different. Yes, researchers are essentially mimicking the process of agriculturally induced mutations in traditional plant breeding. Oh, and CRISPR makes it easier and faster. And there's less guesswork. Scientists are already using CRISPR to do some pretty neat things like editing wheat to reduce gluten, soybeans to create healthier oil, or potatoes to store them longer, and lots of other things as well. Okay, so gene editing is happening already, and we touched on it with a pretty simplified version of how the process works. But let's move on to why it matters. There are a lot of people on the planet. When I was born in 1980, there were about four and a half billion of us milling about. And we expect double that number around 2050, nine billion. Right. Previously, global hunger has been largely due to distributional shortcomings. We had the ability to produce enough food to feed everyone, but we weren't doing enough to get it to everyone. And you're saying that's changing. More and more people requires new technologies that will increase the amount of food we'll need to produce. We already know that to meet anticipated demand by the time we reach that 9 billion, 
we need to increase agricultural yields, so the amount of food that we produce, by 70 to 100 percent. In an era of unprecedented climate change. Yes, more extreme temperatures, storms, and flooding. So we'll have a situation where crops might not do as well because of this changing environment, and also less land available to farm and more and more people at the same time that need to eat. And CRISPR is going to help us meet those challenges. It will. Along with smart urban planning, the reduction of food waste, better water and energy conservation, and a lot of other tools to keep us healthy and protect the environment. Okay, but tell me about the safety. There are a lot of people very worried about genetically modified foods. I understand. New technology can sound scary. And as I've said earlier, large multinational corporations have definitely created some products using GM technology that have led to real environmental and social challenges. Genetic modification, though, is a tool, and we have to make sure that it's used responsibly. What about in terms of health? A comprehensive 2016 study by the National Academy of Sciences concluded that genetically engineered crops are just as safe to eat as their non-genetically engineered counterparts. So you're saying, I won't turn into Wolverine. Unfortunately, no. But we will feed a lot more people. I hope so. And if listeners are interested to learn more about CRISPR and genetically modified foods, you can find that new issue of Wired, All About Food. And you can also look forward to the next issue of Futures Magazine out of Michigan State University, all about the research and the people that are changing the way that we are going to produce food. You've been listening to Serving Up Science, the series all about food, where it comes from, and how it impacts our health and our planet. I'm Carell Vega. And I'm Cheryl Kirschenbaum, and this is WKAR. You're listening to a special Serving Up Science edition of Current State. I'm Carell Vega. And I'm Cheryl Kirschenbaum. Carell, are you wearing a jacket already? It's officially fall, Cheryl, and it's starting to get chilly out there. Fair enough. I may be in denial because I just love the warm weather in Michigan. But with fall come some things to look forward to. Thanksgiving. True. Apple picking. Been to the orchards two times already. Pumpkin spice. No. I'm guessing you're not a fan. Ugh. Well, you're not alone in your dislike of pumpkin spice. Just last week, John Oliver went on this rant. Yes, it's that special time of year where we voluntarily imbibe pumpkin spice lattes, the coffee that tastes like a candle. And, <laughs> and, I, and I don't mean it tastes like a candle smells. Pumpkin spice lattes taste like a candle tastes. <laughs> don't ask me how I know that. Pumpkin spice coffee is really popular, Cheryl. I know, and I've spotted pumpkin spiced whipped cream, pumpkin spice cereal, pumpkin spice potato chips, and pumpkin spice everything this time of year. But you're not buying it. Definitely not. Pumpkin spice just isn't my cup of tea. Or in my cup of tea. Okay, I get it. And I see where you're coming from. The most shocking example I've seen this year is pumpkin spice cottage cheese. Where do we draw the line? I'm not personally sure, but we did a non-scientific survey on social media, and I can tell you 53% of our respondents said no. Just no. 31% said it's okay for coffee, but not chips. And 16% said bring it on. Did you see the cottage cheese, by the way? Disgusting. I can't believe someone would ever do that. I mean, I know there's a case to be made that it's good to experiment with new flavors, but again, some things were not meant to be pumpkin spiced. But I feel like we're being a little biased. There's not even usually pumpkin in pumpkin spice, Carell. No? 
Pumpkin spice began as pumpkin pie spice. Originally, it was a mix of cloves, nutmeg, and cinnamon, sometimes ginger. So it started as a blend of ingredients people used specifically to season pumpkin pies. Right. And while we usually associate pumpkin pie with American colonists, the popular dessert, which I do like, by the way, didn't make a cameo at the first Thanksgiving. American colonists were eating pumpkins back then, but their ovens weren't yet able to make the modern pie crusts we now enjoy. So pumpkins were roasted for stews, sauces, and soups, or baked into breads and cakes. The flavors we associate with quote pumpkin spice didn't show up until the 1950s when McCormick put it on the supermarket shelves as a spice bottle. Ah, I see, and that's how pumpkin spice found its way into other foods and beverages. In the 1990s, retailers spent a lot of time experimenting with different flavored coffees. The explosion of pumpkin spice coffee more recently followed the success of Starbucks pumpkin spice latte in 2003, which is still their most popular seasonal drink. Which you won't be ordering. The company even released their PSL, as it's known to fans, about a week earlier this year in honor of the drink's 15th anniversary. The late August release prompted some pretty funny conversations online. One Twitter user wrote, "It's 90 degrees out, but I bet somebody will be wearing UGGs drinking pumpkin spice latte today." And no, I probably won't be ordering it. But how did we come to associate pumpkin spice flavors with autumn? That's the time of year colonists would have been thinking ahead and preparing their homes for winter. Which we still do today with things like storm windows. We do, and when it comes to food, people preserved and baked with the smells of cinnamon, nutmeg, ginger, cloves, and allspice. Many of the same spices we still use in our fall desserts in this millennium. So of course we now consider them comfort foods, and we feel an emotional tie to the scent. So for many of us, pumpkin spice itself is strongly associated with the holidays and feelings of warmth and family. Holidays like Thanksgiving. Yes, and that relationship has been lucrative for all sorts of retailers who introduce ever more pumpkin spice products each season. You're saying there's been a kind of emotional branding around the concept of pumpkin spice, tied to our national history as well as our personal experiences. So when I enjoy a pumpkin spice latte, there's a lot more to my experience than taste. Emotional branding is a clever way that companies create an effective link between the consumer. And the brand, and so that's why we now have the seasonal domination of pumpkin spice. Here's another example from Mad Men's Don Draper. It's the feeling a product gives to someone that he called the carousel. It's not called the wheel. It's called the carousel. Let's just travel the way a child travels, round and around, and back home again. Right, emotional branding works and can taste good too for some people. If sales are any indication to a lot of people, according to data from Nielsen, in the week ended August 25th of this year, sales of pumpkin spiced flavored items totaled nearly seven million dollars. That's a 10 percent increase in dollar growth from the year before, and that was one week before the release of America's favorite pumpkin spice flavored latte. It's a part scent and a part nostalgia. Plus, its popularity provides a sense of community and solidarity. It's as American as pumpkin spice. I guess so. You've been listening to Serving Up Science, where your hosts aren't drinking pumpkin spiced hot beverages. At least not today. This series is produced at Michigan State University in association with Food at MSU. I'm Carell Vega, and I'm Cheryl Kirschenbaum, and this is WKAR.
And that does it for our Serving Up Science edition of Current State this week. Serving Up Science is a production of WKAR in association with Food at MSU. Join science writer Cheryl Kirschenbaum and myself every Wednesday afternoon on All Things Considered here on WKAR as we tackle more subjects related to food, science, and history. You can also check us out and subscribe to the weekly podcast on WKAR.org or find us on the NPR podcast page. Current State is made at the College of Communications, Arts, and Sciences at Michigan State University. The show is produced by Emily Fox, Kevin Lavery, Laura Michaels, Jamie Paisley, Scott Pohl, Peter Worf, and our news director, Reginald Hardwick. WKAR's director of broadcasting is Susie Elkins. I've been your host, Karel Vega. Thank you for listening, and have a fantastic rest of your weekend. Thank you.